welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops-Tay-Sequetan territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetan-Ulu. And no territorial acknowledgement this week as we continue our trip across the Cursed Isle, Joe. <laughs> yes, we are talking about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a.k.a. the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> but uh, a distinctly British text, Brenna. Very much so. So... 1950, this was published, uh, mm -hmm. written by C.S. Lewis, part of definitely the canon of modern British literature generally, and certainly modern children's literature. I was just saying to you before we started that I hadn't revisited this text in some time, and then I read it with my kiddo over the summer because mm -hmm. the children's theater in the park was putting on the play and i oh, did cute. not want him to be blindsided by the whole uh aslan dying <laughs> thing hey the hero dies but it's okay because he'll be resurrected yeah yeah so we definitely uh have just revisited this in my house so that meant that uh kiddo actually watched the movie with me which Ooh. almost never happens and yeah interesting. it's interesting i was just reminded that um i really love the world that is created Mm -hmm. I often find the prose tiring in the same way that I find Tolkien tiring, which is fitting mm. because they were pals. Okay. And it's really this sort of like post-war yep. anxiousness mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of, of sort of childhood and protecting it, but also defending it, sometimes violently. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot going on in this children's book that takes it way beyond the realm, I think, of of what is written on the cover of the first edition, which is a story for children, where P.S. lots of things die. Yeah, it is interesting. I almost always forget that there's a giant war sequence that ends the book, because in my mind, this is the story about Aslan versus the White Witch and these kids that get caught in the middle. But I feel like I only ever really remember the opening. Like, it's about Lucy going through the wardrobe, finding this magical world, having tea with Mr. Tumnus, and Edmund eating a lot of something that North Americans almost never consume. <laughs> <laughs> to the point that i was like i don't even know what they're talking about is he eating a piece of fruit or is it a candy <laughs> <laughs> you have seen turkish delight in your adulthood right i have and of mm. course you know we we've, we've got the like gelatinous kind of your mileage may vary gross to some people delicious to others mm. candy bar version yeah i'm not like a big fan of flour flavored food in general <laughs> <laughs> Where's your sense of excitement, Brenna? So, Turkish Delight isn't one for me, but I was reminded in watching the film version that, you know, mm -hmm. this book came out in 1950, set in 1940. These kids are evacuees from London. Right. Sugar would have been rationed, right, at this oh. time period, not just during mm -hmm. the war, but in the immediate post-war period. So when you see Edmund bite into this gelatinous goo that is literally just coated in a layer of powdered sugar, mm -hmm. yeah, I get it. It's been yeah. a long time since that kid's eaten powdered sugar. It's true. Yeah. And and these are obviously relatively well-to-do kids. I mean, oh, yeah. it's a biggish family, but also one that, I don't know, I'm not sure how you felt about this, but I was kind of surprised that they end up 
all four of them getting placed in a single giant mansion in the middle of nowhere. I was like, wow, didn't they luck out? Well, I was struck, especially again, it's some things that the film makes more resonant than are in the book for me. Mm -hmm. But I was really struck by, you know, in the book, you're really caught up with how sad it is that they've been Mm -hmm. separated from their lives and that they're kind of bumming around this house trying to like find stuff to do. Mm -hmm. But when you watch the film version and you see them on the train and you see the way other children are being like manhandled as they get on and off the trains. And, you know, in a Canadian context, you think about the kids who didn't have families and Mm -hmm. places to go. Those kids got evacuated to like Canada to be like servants. And so it really comes home just how safe really Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy always are. Mm -hmm. Which I don't think you realize when you're a kid reading it, right? Like the context becomes very different once you understand the the history surrounding it. Yeah, like I, I remember reading this not as a young child, but I think somewhere in maybe my mid-teens. Did we read this for our class, our YA no, class? No, we didn't. It used to be on the curriculum and we he had like changed it up so we didn't have this one. Okay, to which I I think I may have said a a silent prayer of thanks, but um, which is not to say I don't like this book. I I think it's fine. Kind of like you, I find the prose a little bit irritating. It's almost sing-songy, and it's got that weird repetitious bent to it that is, it feels like, yes, this is very much intended for a child audience, but then also, you're right, like, the themes and the events of this book are deeply upsetting in a way that I think nowadays we would say, oh, you probably shouldn't have this in a book for children of this age. It's inappropriate. Whereas we were just doing it all the time back in the 1950s, right? Well, and also, and I don't mean to bring up a complaint that I have had before, but gosh, a lot of walking, Joe. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, this must have been really rough for you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Brenna, let's say folks have never even read or heard of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What is this book about? Okay, so we've already sort of alluded that it's set during uh, the bombing of London during the Blitz in World War II. So mm-hmm. uh, our main characters, eldest son, Peter, uh, eldest daughter, Susan, and then Edmund, uh, also known as the worst one, and Ugh. Lucy, also known as my favorite. Um, of these- course, because she's just like you. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, when I was reading it this time, I was like, oh, I think I grew up to be a Susan. Oh, you, yeah, sorry, you definitely grew up to be Susan. And I'm definitely a Peter. And it's just like, ugh, earnest barf. Um, so these four children get evacuated to a large mansion in the countryside, and there's not much to do there. Mm-hmm. In their explorations of the house, Lucy finds a wardrobe, and uh, she kind of exits through the back of the wardrobe into this magical winter wonderland, mm-hmm. or so she thinks, uh, called Narnia. So she's the first one to go through the wardrobe. She's the first one to meet characters like Mr. Tumnus, uh, the fawn who admits that he's actually supposed to be kidnapping her. It's a whole thing. Mm -hmm. Her siblings don't believe her. And so the next time they're playing hide and seek, I think, and Edmund follows her through the wardrobe. And this time he encounters the White Witch and we find out just how... I mean, Edmund has been annoying since the beginning of the book, let's be clear. He's a brat, yeah. He's such a brat, but now we discover that, like, he will literally do anything to um, appease his base (laughs) instincts, so... Yeah, like, he's willing to turn over his siblings (laughs) to a strange, intimidating woman that he has only just met 
for candy. Yes, for candy and also for the fact that he could be the prince mm-hmm. and his siblings could be nothing. That's what he right. really wants. And it's really mostly Peter. Like he and Peter yeah. have a sibling rivalry that is very much, oh, I'm intimidated by my much better behaved, much more accomplished older brother. <laughs> Yes, I really don't like Edmund, and I texted no, Joe during the you're movie. You're not supposed to. Because in the movie, they try to give him like this traumatic backstory that explains his behavior, and I texted Joe, and I was like, let me hate this child in peace. I mean, the book does to a certain extent as well. There's a part in the book late in the book that talks about how things changed when Edmund, I think, went to high school or when he changed to a new school. Mm. And I think we're meant to infer that he was either being bullied or he was having a difficult time. And I was like, cool. When I was being bullied, I definitely didn't try to like more or less sell my sibling (laughs) into like either servitude, like endangered servitude and or death. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, well, different, different boundaries. Anyway, all this to say, (laughs) Edmund gets back to the house with Lucy. Lucy knows that Edmund has been to Narnia because he followed her there. She saw him there, but because he's such a jerk, he still denies the existence of Narnia to Peter and Susan, who as the older siblings feel like they have to be, you know, sort of the logical ones, the reasonable ones. Mm -hmm. I will say, It always feels like this is more important than it is. And I realize in hindsight that it's just to set up the division between Edmund and his siblings so that when he takes off after they get more or less rescued slash brought up to date by the beavers, that you understand why Edmund has done what he has done. But it's a lot of it's a lot of the first part of the book where you're just like, this is going to be super important. And then it's just like, no, Edmund made a bad decision and he'll regret it for the rest of the book. Yep. Yep. It's it's a lot of backstory. It's very of its moment mm-hmm. in terms of literary style, but it um, is often, you know, it's slightly tedious. Anyway, all this to say, <laughs> eventually, while hiding from the housekeeper, all four children have a reason to enter the wardrobe together and they tumble through to Narnia. And so begins the adventure. They discover that Mr. Tumnus has been arrested. And the only reason he could possibly have been arrested is because he didn't kidnap Lucy. And so we start to find out the story. The White Witch calls herself the Queen of Narnia, but she's not. And she's the reason why it is Mm -hmm. always winter, but never Christmas. I have to say, growing up in Canada, Uh always winter and never (laughs) Christmas is like the entire first three months of the year. (laughs) Yeah, to which I'm just like, UK, that's all you've got? Come on, you can do better. better Come over here for a little bit. You'll understand what it truly means to be cold all the time and not have Christmas. Exactly. Um, The children meet helper figures along the way, and they discover that there's this prophecy that Aslan, Mm. uh, P.S., he's Jesus. Aslan is this big lion (laughs) who is... Call him Jesus Lion like he's supposed to be. (laughs) And he has this prophecy that two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve will sit on the four thrones of Care Paravel, which means these children are going to be the leaders. But uh-oh, Edmund has escaped to go hook up with the White Witch and get his Turkish delight, which, spoiler alert, she's not going to give him. Um, also, not a euphemism. We're not doing, like, <laughs> inappropriate sex games here. No, he wants rose jelly candy, and he will kill his siblings to get it. Yes. So... Because he's escaped, now the three of them have to try to find Aslan and find out what happens next. There are a series of adventures with beavers and, you know, all kinds of other creatures and animals. Sure. 
ultimately what happens is the White Witch reminds Aslan that there's this deal that any treasonous person belongs to her. And Aslan offers to sacrifice himself to protect Edmund, to which I always ask, why? Why? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because of the prophecy, Bruno. But he does it, and there is a big war, and good fights evil, and good almost loses, but then it wins, and the children end up on the Mm -hmm. throne, and they govern Narnia, and they grow to be adults, until one day they find that lamp post that they first saw when they came through Narnia and they find the door to the wardrobe again and they tumble back through and no time has passed mm-hmm. at all the end. Yeah. What do you think of this ending? Because I always find it a little bit perplexing because it's not as though we spend a huge significant amount of time with the kids as adults. Like mm-hmm. they take the throne, we hear that they have many adventures and then they kind of grow so old that they have even forgotten about the lamppost and then we're just back to kids and i'll confess i have only ever read the lion the witch and the wardrobe i have not read the other books in the series i assume that the other books tackle some of the adventures in between i don't know i have also not read the rest of the series so i don't know crap that means we're probably gonna have to program the other two adaptations aren't we (laughs) Yeah, I think so. If only to find out. So my question has always been, like, the professor, they're living in Professor Degree Kirk's house. I don't think we said that at the top. Mm -hmm. The professor believes them. Like, he believes that Narnia exists. He believes everything about what they've experienced. So my question is always so, like... He's the magician. He's been there, right? Like, he's been to Narnia. So, yeah, no, I don't know. We're clearly... It's clearly setting up the series. This is the second book in the Mm. series but it was the first one that was published yeah which i find confusing uh so yeah i i almost wonder if he was like i've already got this other idea but nobody wanted to buy it and then they got this one and this one became the big hit so then they retroactively were like okay go back to the first story he made a prequel i don't know but yeah i i I don't mind the ending. The thing I love most about the ending is this idea that you could have this magical, fantastical, wild experience Mm -hmm. and there could be an adult who would believe you. Like I've always loved Uh, that part Mm because in in children's writing, oftentimes that's not the case, right? The adults are on the outside of the magical world. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's not like wildly satisfying, but (laughs) knowing as I do that there are, you know, a number of other books that come later i sort of forgive it if that makes sense right and i think one of the things that i kind of like about this idea is that if we're thinking of this not as a religious allegory or whatever c.s lewis wanted to call it because he refused to call it an allegory (laughs) i like it as an example of the way that in childhood you can spend afternoons or weekends wrapped up in this fantastical magical fantasy world And then it feels like no time has passed and it's like you've lived an entire life and yet it's only been a couple of hours. So to me, it does feel very emblematic of the way that children play and and have this rich interior fantasy life. Yeah, totally. And I guess it's it's sort of the magic of this place that you can go back and forth, right? And that Mm -hmm. you can, yeah, well, find an adult who understands, right? Especially if you consider how alone these kids are. I like that aspect of it. Yeah. So what else from the book kind of stands out for you? Like, why do you think that this became such a classic? Oh, well, I mean, it is it is a religious allegory, right? It's a way to teach children about 
the story of Christ ultimately Mm -hmm. without (laughs) telling them the story of Christ, right? Like it's about the importance of being willing to sacrifice yourself for something larger. Um, You know, Aslan is resurrected because of love and duty and responsibility. So like as a moral lesson, it's very clear that this book has a, Mm -hmm. it has a lot of power in that regard. Right. Right. So I think that's huge. I, I think that, at the time that this was published, C.S. Lewis sort of starts off a, a renaissance of fantasy and fairy tales for children, right? Children's books had been pretty uh, highly realistic at the time, or at least that was mm. what was most fashionable. So I think, you know, you combine a new, well, not new, but a resurgence of sort of the fantastic, and you combine that with a strong moral message. <laughs> mm-hmm. Grownups love those. <laughs> but I think mm-hmm. you get a very powerful um a very powerful book for that reason right yeah yeah i can see this being one of those books that adults like maybe even more than children because Mm -hmm. of that strong moral message and particularly yeah if you abide by the christian faith you're gonna look at this and say like "Ooh, here's a nice little piece of propaganda that i can get my child (laughs) on the right path for i'm sorry i'm being very flippant it's just more For the record, folks, I do need to share that Joe texted me when he first started rereading the book, and he was like, oh, Sons of Adam. Yes, you made that joke at the end of last week's episode oh, as sorry. well. I know, but it's funny to me. It's well, it, it it's to me not the part of the book that you remember the most, right? You yeah. remember Aslan dying on the stone table after being bound, and you're like, oh, it's the crucifixion. Oh, it's the resurrection. So it's like, that's the piece of like kind of religious pop that I remember from the book. Right. And then I realize, oh, okay, no, there is more to this. Like this to a certain extent is a bit of a gateway like it's a junior bible for kids like mm-hmm. a sunday school yeah because i mean you know edmund is the is is judas right like the notion of sort of being a traitor for a personal gain um and then the guilt of mm-hmm. <laughs> somebody being willing to sacrifice themselves for you anyway like i'm not entirely sure how edmund's supposed to just go on with his life after all of this like right is there therapy in Narnia? Because just well, remember like... that the sisters don't tell him, though, right? They yeah. decide that it would be too much for him to have to live with, so they decide to keep it quiet. But yeah, but you know, it's the founding legend mm-hmm. of this new monarchy, so the odds are he's going to hear about it, right? <sighs> uh, interestingly enough, did you know that this movie does get criticism for paganism? No. <laughs> Are you kidding I, me? I kind of found it funny that people, you know, there's this very like strong Christian bent to it, but then there's still a bunch of Christians who are like, ooh, but we're talking a little bit too much about like Dionysus and other things. I I don't know if that's specific to this book or the entire series. It might just be like the whole of the the Narnia series. But, but they lose. Like yeah, the know. whole thing is over I mean uh, okay. You know, this is my problem with when we talk about like these groups that want to censor books and stuff. It's like, let's make a deal where you have to read it. Then you can do what you want with it. But you have to have read it. Because that is wild. That is that is utterly wackadoodle in the context of how those characters are framed. Like, having just watched the film version with a five-year-old, there is no child out there who is siding with the bad guys. It's not happening. <laughs> I don't know. I want a scepter that turns my enemies into stone. That seems You're not very five. enticing. 
<laughs> you're not five oh, and you love oh, Tilda right. Swinton, so it doesn't count for you. <laughs> well, speaking of, why don't we transition over to the film? Please. Impossible. Take them. There is a prophecy that two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve will appear to defeat the White Witch and put an end to this hundred-year winter. I think you've made a mistake. We're not heroes. There's no mistake. Aslan is on the move. We need your help. I know, but understand, the future of Narnia rests on your courage. If it's a war Aslan wants, it's a war he shall get. Okay, so we finally get a film adaptation. Of course, there was a BBC miniseries. I had every intention of watching a couple of episodes because I remember it vividly from when I was a child. And unfortunately, I just ran out of time before. uh, So I can't comment on the differences in the different adaptations. But the one that we're going to talk about today is the 2005 The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe directed by Andrew Adamson from a screenplay by Adamson, as well as Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. And this movie, Brenna, has a budget of $180 million, grossed $745 million. So this is very much the sweet spot for YA adaptations because Mm -hmm. it's coming out in 2005, about four to five years after Harry Potter really breaks big. And I feel like you can see the influence all over this adaptation. Yeah, that and you can see the influence of the Lord of the Rings, I think, too. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it it feels like a combination of the two, right? Like a proper British sensibility, young upstart actors that we can, you know, basically groom into a future franchise, as well as big budget FX and battle sequences and that kind of stuff. I am obsessed with the fact that the kid who plays Edmund in the film series, uh, he grows up to be like a political operative in real life. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, That's he's like fun. a lobbyist and an advisor. Uh, uh, right wing. Right wing, by the way. Um, boo. Okay. <laughs> I mean, on brand, I guess. Yes, totally. <laughs> I love it. Like, of course, Edmund is a lobbyist in real life. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. So speaking of, you're referring to Skandar Keynes as Edmund. We also have William Mosley as Peter, Anna Popowell as Susan, Georgie Henley as Lucy. If none of these names sound familiar, it's because they were basically cherry-picked for these roles. They were more or less all newcomers, a la Harry Potter. But we do have an adult cast of Tilda Swinton as the White Witch, James McAvoy as Mr. Tunmus, Ray Winstone as the voice of Mr. Beaver, Don French as the voice of Miss Beaver, and Liam Neeson as Aslan. It's a real British who's who. Mm-hmm. It has that in common with the Harry Potter films too. It's like, what adult cameo am I going to see next? Right. Yes. I mean, I think as we have talked about repeatedly for YA Bingo, it's like the stunt casting is where it's at in YA mm-hmm. films, particularly of this era, right? Like 90s 
late 90s but then really into the 2000s and 2010s it's like you can't get one of these movies unless you've got some kind of recognizable adult figure to anchor it and then it's like cool here's 200 million (laughs) dollars It's true. That said, for newcomers, I do think the ch- the child cast is quite good. Oftentimes, yeah, good. Yeah. you know, oftentimes they they pluck a nobody who doesn't have a lot of screen experience, and it's a little grating for the first couple of films in a series. And mm-hmm. Looking at you, Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> oh, it is amazing how good those child actors become because those yes. first couple of films are rough. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, in particular, the casting of Lucy is perfect. Oh yeah. Lucy, for me, is the heart of the story, which I find interesting because uh, C.S. Lewis definitely sees Edmund's arc as the important arc, and I could care less. Just give me all that sweet, sweet Lucy. Um, And I I think the actress who plays her here is that perfect combination of, like, precocious and thoughtful without being, like, face punchy. I really enjoyed her. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, particularly when things start to get more serious. Like, if nothing else, the film has this interesting job of negotiating the transitions in terms of like who's focalized. So, like, this very much starts as Lucy's story, but then it shifts to Edmund's, and then it kind of becomes everybody's. And we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're cutting back and forth between Edmund with the White Witch and then the other kids. But you still have to keep track and care about someone like Lucy so that you can get a good emotional beat when she recognizes Mr. Tunmus in the witch's castle. Yes. Yeah. All all important. And I do think too, you know, it's an interesting choice both in book and film. Peter is the obvious hero, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's never really Peter's story. And I do find that yeah. dynamic very interesting. Yeah, it's intriguing, right? Because normally you wouldn't have your attention divided between four different characters. And it's a bit more challenging, I think, than some of the other like really big budget action adventure texts that we've discussed, because so often it's one character. Like Harry Potter is big with three main characters. And here we're trying to divide our attention between four. Mm -hmm. I would say the film does a reasonable job of keeping our interest or at least making sure that we don't forget, oh, right, there's another one of these kids somewhere. In fairness, neither the film nor the book care at all about Susan. Oh my god, Susan. Poor (laughs) Susan. Just Susan, just loving rules and being boring. That's her job. (laughs) I mean, I do appreciate that Lucy calls her out on it. Specifically, there's that moment in the film where it's like, we used to have these adventures, didn't we? And Lucy's like, yeah, and then you got boring. (laughs) It's like, oh, wow, that cuts deep because it's true. (laughs) I identify as someone who's become boring. So, you know. Uh, You're not boring. You're a mother. (laughs) I just, Uh I mean, obviously we get more boring as we get older because we realize, you know, unfortunately, I can't just have flights of fancy and Turkish delay. I go to work so I can pay the bills and then I get tired. So I drink a glass of wine. And it's fun because what makes Susan boring is observations like this lion is dead now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah, you really do get the impression that C.S. Lewis doesn't have a lot to give her, like to the point where you think, why did you need four kids? Why why didn't you just make it three? (laughs) Should have just made it three. Oh, well, she's a good actress. And, you know, she's she's fine to watch. It's it's nothing she's doing. It's the material for sure. But oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So something that I think is a choice the filmmakers make is we get a lot more of the kids' backstory. Mm-hmm. Even like the opening of the film is dramatically heightened, right? Yeah, so we see the blitz happening. In, mm-hmm. in many ways, the the book, it launches us as the children are already on their adventure, right? They're mm-hmm. en route to this new house and, and all of the... All of the wartime stuff is just alluded to, which also makes sense for a publication date in 1950. Like, I'm sure oh, people sure. wanted to read a children's book with a narrative of the Blitz about as much as they wanted an extra hole in the head. So <laughs> it makes sense. Um, but here we get this very dramatic, the children are actually being bombed. Their their yeah. home is bombed. They almost die. <laughs> they almost die. And we get to see them leaving their mother, which, you know, in the book, it's never actually clear that there are parents for them to return to of any Mm-mm. kind. Mm-mm. We also have a father who uh, is in the war. He's either dead or missing, but he's certainly not home. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a place where, you know, we have this additional bonding between Mr. Tumnus and Lucy because Mr. Tumnus's father also went off to war, apparently. And so mm. it's really interesting because I think what the filmmaker is trying to do here is create a sense of immediacy or connection to the war context, which yes. C.S. Lewis didn't have to do because everybody had it. The war had only been over for four years when this book was published. Yeah, it's like, we're already exhausted by it. Thanks. We don't need the <laughs> reminder. Like, just set yeah. that scene. Whereas here in 2005, it's like, hey, kids, when was the last time your dad went off to war? It's like, well, maybe in very specific context. But yeah. I mean, I guess the other important thing to bear in mind is that we have joked this is a very very british text one of the false starts that they had before this actually got mounted was uh originally there were talks about doing this and setting it in contemporary times and making it american and apparently it was like we talked about it and then we shot it down because (laughs) there was absolutely no way we could do it and i was just like i could only imagine like there would be an invasion. The UK yeah. would literally <laughs> invade and be like, what are you doing to our classic literature? I just, yeah, it's, to me, this story is so English. It's so like, British. Yeah. It's, it's, it would be very, very hard to imagine how that would possibly work. Because even the kid's sensibility feels wrapped up in that kind of sense of British properness, right? Like, yes. we're going to follow rules, we're going to do our part, we're going to be diligent citizens. Like, that's the whole freaking arc of their story in this Yeah. Book. Oh, totally. And like, propriety and mm-hmm. responsibility and duty and all these things that are just, I mean, fictionally or not, so wrapped up in the notion of, of what it is to be British, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's simply wild to me. Yeah. So, Brenna, I'm surprised that it's taking you this long, but we haven't talked about the other thing that this movie does, which is your absolute favorite, which is that it gooses up all of the action. So we have full-blown action sequences. Like, we're doing a whole thing where we have to jab a sword into a piece of (laughs) – what do we even call it? I want to say iceberg. Ice flow. Yes, we're Mm -hmm. stabbing a sword into an ice flow so that we can avoid wolves, but we're going under, we're maybe losing Lucy, it's a big to-do. Like, this this movie really says, okay, in order to get people excited for this story, we need to make it a huge production with big action set pieces. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, the stakes go up because, of course, like they think Lucy is dead for a moment. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, all of these uh, moments of absolutely intense peril, none of which are in the book. The, the, no. the book is actually very quiet until mm -hmm. the war scene. I mean, they are they are fleeing. They are frightened. But like the waterfall scenes, not mm -hmm. not equivalent in the book. Yeah, I think I just expected it, right? This movie is of that classic Christmas blockbuster era. I don't even know if we're still doing that. It's been so long since I've been to a movie theater. I don't know if we're still <laughs> blockbustering at Christmas, but like... Uh, Brenna, it's called Avatar 2. It's playing in theaters right now. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I just... I blocked Avatar 1 from my memory. It was just Fern Gully where I got a headache from the 3D glasses, but okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, you know, but like, I really associate this with... Well, our teens and 20s, right? Like there was sure. always something giant, always opening like on Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. And that to me means that you had to do stuff like that, right? I think this was one of those films that I was surprised it was becoming blockbusterized. But once it did, I, you know, just roll with it. I don't think it's yeah. necessary. Like, I don't feel any more sort of closer to or worried for Lucy after I think she's died in the river than i did in the book context like i don't know that it mm -hmm. adds anything to the final story except that it means that the epic battle has to be all the more epic because we've already had like several near-death experiences it is beautiful though let me just say like the close-up cg is terrible but those mm -hmm. big like the big <laughs> sort of drone scope epic scenes of battle are very impressive and they do evoke that sort of lord of the ringsiness yeah, it, it was interesting because I was watching this and trying to anticipate how you would react to it because I know <laughs> that you have such an issue with bad CGI. And I think that to me, this is definitely it's a step up from mm -hmm. uh, crap, the Golden Compass, which oh, yeah. I feel like has a similar sort of like proper British going on a quest, epic adventure, but also lots of CGI animals that can go super, super dicey. Mm hmm. And this definitely feels better, which is, I mean, similar budget, but I think even just having a couple of extra years helps. You know, some of these animals look real dodgy. We've got oh, Rupert yeah. Everett as a fox, real, real bad. Real, real We've bad. got a couple of green screens where they're like standing, <laughs> the human actors are standing, and the background just looks so effing bad. Yeah, yes. But you're right. I mean, like, there's a whole bunch of other scenes where I'm like, oh, like, Aslan, I think, looks pretty freaking good for the he most does. part. Yeah. The battle sequences, pretty good. Like, the Minotaur, uh, Tilda Swinton's second in command there. Like, I was like, oh, you know what? Pretty darn good. Yeah, I agree. I, I was surprised by how, you know, faces are real hard in cg mm -hmm. like they just they always are and they're still not great so in 2005 it was really difficult <laughs> and the animal faces in particular but i think they they clearly figured out where to spend the time and energy right aslan had to be good right. Morgus, morgus whatever his name is he <laughs> had to be good mm -hmm. but there's a lot of scenes where you see like the cheetahs like running and you're just mm -hmm. like Ooh, it's just pretty yeah it's pretty bad yeah um <laughs> but it's far more watchable than i expected it to be i have to say because i do it pull it does pull me out like i would always rather a janky practical effect than a janky cgi like 10 mm -hmm. times out of 10 um because i find cgi so uncanny when it's wrong i think that's that's why 
Well, it's also interesting that you say that because not all of these are CGI. So some of these are actual puppets that they ended up having to make. It was, I don't think, a last minute decision, but I don't know if it was their first thought to kind of divide and conquer in that regard. But I think maybe some of these do go down better because what we're actually seeing are like robotics and puppets. Mm. The movement of Aslan, I think, in particular is very strong. And when you compare it to the pure CGI movement of like the cheetahs running in battle and stuff, Mm -hmm. you can really see the difference. Um, Right. And it works for me. I would like to point out something Mm -hmm. about the battle scene, Joe, that I texted you about last night. Okay. It made me extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. As near as I can figure, and feel free to correct me if my memory is incorrect, there are very few actors of color in this film, Mm -hmm. and all of them are on the White Witch's evil army. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very, I mean, at at its core, this is a very white movie. Yes. Which is kind of shocking because also... We fully filmed this in New Zealand, which has yeah. a significant indigenous racialized population. Yeah. Like, and they do cast like some locals in it, but those are the people that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, uh, it's alarming to me because it is so, it stands out so much. Like, there's no reason for all the fawns to be white people, right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason for all the centaurs to be white people. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for literally all the orcs to be people of color. Like, it's so, I found it so distracting. I wonder if I would have found it distracting in 2005. I never saw this film before, so I don't know. But, like, to me it was glaring. And it's troublesome because the lore of the film is that this is the ultimate global battle between good and evil. Mm -hmm. So you might want to watch your optics a little (laughs) bit. Yeah, I mean, I saw this in theaters in 2005. And my big takeaway was just like, Wow, okay, that was way longer than it needed to be because <laughs> it's, it, it's two hours and 20 minutes. It took my family two days to watch it. There's <laughs> no way we were sitting through the whole thing. I mean, I get it, right? Like, we're this is epic. This is a very, very well known book that hasn't really been properly adapted to film. Like, as I said, it was a mini series, six parts uh, in that first season for the first book. I think there's two other seasons or two other adaptations. But like, this is the first proper theatrical film, huge budget, took them like forever to get off the ground. So yeah, they wanted to make it big, loud, expensive. They wanted to make a boatload of money, $745 million worldwide. No small feat. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a bunch of things that are just so 2005-y. And the fact that it was like, well, let's make sure all the white people end up on the side of good and all of the other people, aka fill in the blanks. And you're just like, this is a thing that we would literally never do now. Like, I feel like if we did this again, we would either end up with like two of the four kids would be people of color or like we would flip the whole family and they would all be people of color. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's wild to me. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It, I find it distracting. I found it super, super distracting. And then I found, mm. found it uncomfortable. Yeah, Ooh. I think it it's sort of in that uncomfortable period where it feels like we should have started to think about it, but we weren't actively doing it because we kept thinking that if we cast even a single black person in a blockbuster, it's <laughs> not going to so. do well or we can't yeah. sell it internationally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd say we're about like five to seven years off of that. Oh, man, oh, man. Uh, but okay, so Brenna... 
Do you yeah. want to play some YA bingo on this? Of course I do. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, for the final time in 2022, ah! what have you got? Okay, obviously, Magic Supernatural. No. <laughs> um, obviously, I think, well, maybe you'll argue with me. I think it's a chosen one narrative um, I for do. a couple of reasons. It's just it's reasons. all four of them, right? Yeah, all four of them. Um, But particularly, you know, Edmund has to go through this, like, mm. learning how to be a human being um <laughs> arc <laughs> that the whole thing is ultimately sort of arranged around uh, so sure. i think for that reason we have huge stunt casting in the adult cast mm-hmm. oh i haven't mentioned jim broadbent plays oh, yeah. uh yes this man that they're housed with and he's literally just doing his harry potter role 100 percent. so distracting 100 <laughs> percent. also you know one thing we haven't talked about is that santa is in the movie in the book um mm-hmm. santa's an arms dealer <laughs> you said that off mic and i guffawed then and i just guffawed <laughs> again because that's pretty funny he's basically like hey kids here let me prepare you for war <laughs> I do like that uh, in 2005, though, they had enough sensibility to not say, oh, like a war is no place for girls. Yes. Or the girls can only heal. That's their only power. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I mean, I guess having Santa isn't really stunt casting. It's like stunt characters. But yeah, anyway. Um, I mean, it's a holiday. Oh, I was going to say, I think that's for the reason we need to give it the holiday square because, Mm -hmm. yeah, everybody forgets that this is a holiday text, apparently. But Santa's like straight up in it. Sure. Obviously, once the melt begins, we're on borrowed time. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to include a dead body or dead family, even though we don't really know what's going on in the book. It's It seems to be clear that there's a, a dead dad in the history in the film version. Right. Yeah. And and even, I think, uh, so many of the Narnia characters, oh, yeah. like you can debate whether or not we can count them all as dead people because they've just been turned into statues and you know aslan just goes by and like apparently has some really spearminty breath and he brings them back to life with it but but not the statues that get smashed i was literally in Mm -hmm. mid-sentence saying to my five-year-old of course nobody's dying in the battle honey they're just getting turned into statues when she takes one of the statues of the griffins and just smashes it against the rocks (laughs) Uh, except that one that one's the only one nice (laughs) 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 um i'm gonna give house porn because this country house is yeah yeah it also looks like it would be super fun it's definitely a place you would find in narnia yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. um i'm gonna say road trip because particularly when we go from the beavers to the stone table it feels like a proper trek walking walking so much walking walking. you love it you love a walk (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we didn't say cgi we should say cgi there's a oh, lot of it right sorry i thought that that was a bit of a given there's infinity cgis <laughs> infinity yeah um i mean no no romances no queer characters in this uh so we end up losing a lot of the usual blocks that we would talk about yeah so um no kissing and i am struck by the fact that their lives in narnia there are four mm-hmm. siblings on the throne. There appear to be no other humans. They will just live very chaste lives forever. Yeah, I mean, the book does a better job of hinting that there's other civilizations in this world. Like Aslan literally right. leaves because he's got this dominion. And it's like, cool, I'll be back. Maybe never, but 
either that or like next week and we do get a reference that there's definitely other people who want to take susan or lucy as their queen oh right that's right still though Mm -hmm. it it feels like we'll tell you more in a future book (laughs) which now we'll do next christmas joe program it out oh will we okay (laughs) yeah by we i mean you oh okay (laughs) all right (laughs) well that's the problem. You take the romance out and it gets really hard to get a bingo square. There we go. Yeah. Um, not bad. All things considered, it's just not lining up for us. Yeah. All right, Joe. Well, you know what? Mm-hmm. There, we're going to take some time off. Yeah. 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 We're going we're gonna to take a couple of weeks of the new year off. Brenny, mm-hmm. you're going to travel back and see your mom for a little bit. I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we get back, we are going to absolutely not be in the Christmas spirit at all. No. It's going to be the opposite, maybe. Uh, we're going to be watching a film called Rhymes for Young Ghouls, uh, Indigenous Horror, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but folks, if you're living in Canada, you can find this on Gem. Uh, so it's it's streamable and you should check it out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I feel like we've talked about this in one of our homework episodes, but uh, Brenna and I both pretty strongly like this movie but um yeah i mean maybe save this one for after your holiday break because it is uh it's upsetting it's difficult to watch it is very much so so if you want to write to us and like tell us why edmund isn't a waste of space (laughs) everything do that (laughs) we are at hkhs pod on the twitters for as long as twitter continues to last or HKHSPod is our hashtag. You can email us anything long form, HKHSPod at gmail.com. Joe, if they want to follow up with you, how do they do that? I can be reached at B Stone My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C Gray, and that's Gray with an A. Uh, so yeah, a few weeks off, not super long, but um, enjoy your time together, listeners. We always are grateful for the time we get to spend with you, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, have a have a happy holidays and everybody rest up for the the new year if that's your bag. <laughs> so uh yeah, until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. C.S. Lewis really sets off kind of a a renaissance of fantasy and fairy children for the do we have a book club what's the book club oh they've already given us their information for book club right i mean you could pimp out the next one but you haven't actually planned it so we can't tell them what it is okay then we'll just leave it